Hello and welcome to Medico Legal Expert Insight. My name is Jessica and in this podcast, we interview medical and legal professionals to help connect and understand when, what, why and how both sides interpret the information given to them. The goal is to share expert opinions from both sides of the medico-legal industry. I do want to say a huge thank you to eReports for the support and access to all these incredible experts. So let's get started and connect the dots through conversation. Today, I would like to welcome Paula Shelton, Special Counsel at Advice Line Injury Lawyers and Law Institute of Victoria Accredited Personal Injury Specialist. Paula and I are going to give you some insights into medical negligence case preparation. Paula is going to share how you determine whether you actually have a claim or not and the difference from a work cover or TAC claim how she selects her medical experts and what detail frustrates her in a report, how she prepares everything for court, and she'll give us some key lessons she has learned in her 25 years in litigation. So let me introduce Paula Shelton. She has worked across a range of areas, including medical negligence, product liability, public liability, class actions, and social justice litigation. Paula's dedication to high-quality healthcare led her to take up a board position in 2016 at Northern Health. Her dedication and her keen interest in medico-legal issues saw her serve on the Western Health Institutional Ethics Committee and Human Research and Ethics Committee between 2002 and 2014. A passion for justice drives Paula to fight for her clients and achieve the best possible result, which led her to being nominated for Pro Bono Lawyer of the Year in 2016. Paula was also appointed to the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board in 2018. Paula, what a collection of achievements you have obtained over your personal injury career. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jess, for that very kind introduction. You are most welcome. You've you've definitely achieved a lot. <laughs> oh, well, you know, been, been around the trap for a while and I had some Really fantastic opportunities and, and some work on some wonderful cases. It definitely sounds like it. So you're, you're working currently in medical negligence. So let's start with how, how you actually determine in your current role of medical negligence whether you've got a claim or not. Yeah, well, I mean, perhaps I'll just explain it to you as I, as I would to a client who yeah. is coming in to, to see me. So, you know, to, to prove a medical negligence claim, there are three things that you need to show. Yeah, and the first thing that you need to show is that the, the doctor, the medical professional, um, owed you a duty to take care for your welfare, okay? And that's easy. It's very clear as a matter of Australian law that any sort of medical professional um, owes you a duty to take reasonable care. Okay. Uh, the second thing that you need to show is that there was a, a breach in that duty of care. So the treatment that you got um, fell below the standard that you're entitled to expect. Um, and the third thing that you need to show is that there has been some damage that has resulted from that breach of duty. Mm. So they're the key things um, that any medical negligence um, case has to prove. Um, and 
In terms of the, the breach of duty, um, a special is, is not considered negligent if they acted in a manner that at the time of the, the service, the medical service, um, was, that was widely accepted in Australia by a significant number of respected practitioners in the field as competent professional practice. Um, so, for instance, if... Um, you know, 70% of, of surgeons would recommend surgery in a certain circumstance and 30% wouldn't. Neither of those positions is, is considered negligent. Um, mm. That's considered um, a difference of professional opinion. Yeah. So what, what is there certain a certain level of negligence? So if there is there like an extreme le- negligence and then like on the lower scale negligence? Well, I mean, we need to prove our case on the balance of probabilities. Um, yeah. And so we need to show on the balance of probabilities that they were negligent. And, and we rely very, very heavily on expert opinion um, mm-hmm. in, in this area because of, because of the peer professional um, opinion um, doctrine that we, we just discussed. So we need to get an opinion from someone who works in the area saying that the treatment that you know the client received was unreasonable. We do sometimes in some cases allege gross negligence Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where, as you say, the level of negligence is so great that, that it takes the, the behaviour to another level. And sometimes in those circumstances, we can claim exemplary um, or aggravated damages, which is a, another level of, I guess, punishment for the defendant and compensation um, for the client. Yeah, okay. So when you're looking at experts, what what's the difference between a work cover and a TAC claim compared to a, a medical negligence claim? And what's something that, you know, the experts that you're going to need to know the difference between them? Well, look, the main difference is that, um, of course, there's no no-fault scheme in, in medical negligence. So, you know, it, it, back way in the day, um, you know, you, 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 it was all unlimited common law. Mm-hmm. And you needed to prove that your defendant had negligently caused your injury for you to get any compensation. And that, you know, um, that has been extensively um, amended um, and legislated um, about in the areas of transport accident and work cover. Um, what that means is that, you know, there is a no-fault no system. You have um, an injury at work or on the road, then you're entitled to a variety of benefits um, that um, you don't have to prove fault for. It's just the fact that of the circumstances of your injury entitles you to those benefits. Um, and with the, I guess the quid pro quo of that is both of those systems have also extensively restricted the right of a plaintiff to bring a claim for negligence. So that you have to show a certain level of impairment um, before you can do that. As opposed to that, um, medical negligence are, are common law claims. Um, there have been some amendments to, to those rights in, in the Wrongs Act, but it, it, it's kind of an all or nothing compensation. If you can prove your um, your treatment was negligent and you've suffered an injury as a result of it, mm-hmm. um, then you're entitled to the, your damages. And if you can't prove um, to, to the requisite level, you're entitled to nothing. Yeah. Okay. So when selecting your experts for these particular cases, what what do you look for? What's important to you? How do you select them? Well, it, because of the doctrine of peer professional opinion, um, it's very important that we get someone in the same speciality as the potential defendant. Um, because we're if we can't do that, we're very much subject to the criti- criticism by the defendant and also by the court that, in fact, our expert is not qualified to, to testify as to the requisite level of care mm. and whether there was a breach in the standard of care. So, number one, their area of expertise is, is absolutely vital. 
Um, their, their knowledge and their reputation um, is very important. And, you know, there are um, you know, a number of practitioners in, in various areas that are very highly thought of. And so, for instance, um, you know, in a particular area of medicine, um, if I've had a, a, um, a report from a particular expert um, that is supportive, I've never actually been, been served with a, a, a report challenging that. So their the reputation and experience is very important. Um, obviously, their preparedness to, to bring a truly independent view um, to the matter um, is very important. Yeah. And we have to look very carefully at conflicts um, in that context. Um, and, you know, look, many medical specialities in Australia um, are small. Um, and so that, that can be quite a challenging um, issue when you're looking around for someone who's prepared to comment. And also, you know, many people um, are reluctant to engage in, in medical negligence opinions. They don't want to be seen to be challenging um, their colleagues and criticising their colleagues. But I think there's a natural conservatism about that. Um, and so that's, it's important that they are prepared to, to be genuinely independent and impartial. Um, practical issues. Um, are very important. Cost is an issue, no, no doubt about it. Um, yeah. You know, particularly where your client is funding um, the, the reports, um, and of course, um, you know, the time that it takes. I guess that the relationship you develop with the expert, and but the time it takes is also um, very important. Um, it's very hard on on a client to wait a very very long time, you know, for a report. And it, it, I guess it's kind of a bit of a conflict in the sense that, you know, the experts you want are the experts um, who are busy. Yeah, <laughs> so you, they're in clinical you want, you, practice or they're doing surgery. Exactly, because they're, they're the people you want because they actually can give you a genuine opinion about uh, the circumstances of the injury and, and the cause. So that's, I guess, I guess the... The hard part, you do you do want people who are already highly sought after. Mm. But I'd say it's just very hard on a client if they wait a very long time. And it can also um, lead us to problems with things like limitation periods because there are time limits to bring a claim. And so if, you know, your, your client's time limit is, is coming up and you're still waiting on this report and you can't advise them, that's, that's a difficult situation um, as well. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, also um, where... Uh, you know, the expert, um, it's really important the expert looks at the material before agreeing to do it and, 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 and looks at it properly. So particularly from the conflict um, point of view, so that we can make sure that, you know, the, the expert opinion can be turned around and in time for us to, um, to give our clients advice. Mm. Uh, the, the way that they write is very important. Um, obviously, you know, it has to be comprehensible for, for those of us who are, who are not doctors. Yeah. Um, and things like um, extracting large chunks of the medical records and putting them in the report or large chunks of, say, the standards of the relevant professional um, college, that's really not very helpful. Um, you know, we, we can read those. I know what's in the records. Um, you know, I really want to, to really for the expert um, to give their opinion rather than having a lot of extraneous um, material. And of course, another issue is you know the way they present in court. I mean, we don't we don't run a lot of medical negligence cases in Victoria, but mm -hmm. you know the end the end of the process is you know the expert has to get the witness spots at court, and so obviously how they present and and um, you know obviously defend their their opinion and uphold their opinion is very important as well. Yeah. So is there anything, oh, well, I'm sure there is, is anything <laughs> in reports that frustrate you? Yes, <laughs> very much. <laughs> um, I guess that the main one is not answering the question. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, where, if I, I, I frame my, my questions to my experts very carefully and there's a reason for them. And so, you know, we talked about those factors that a plaintiff needs to prove, you know, earlier on. And I frame the questions in a way to get the answers that will allow me to give them advice about the potential case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, if, if, if answering a different question um, is always a problem. And particularly, you know, we, we often... Um, you, Medical negligence cases are hard. You know, they're hard on the negligence and they're also hard on the causation. Mm. Um, so, you know, because patients are, by their nature, people who had something wrong with them yeah. <laughs> and because they wouldn't have been having treatment otherwise. So I frame the questions very carefully and around, you know, how much worse, what's the effect of a delay, for instance. So not answering the question, I guess, would be um, the main one. But commenting on things they're not asked to comment on um, is, is also um, potentially a problem. And... You know, if I haven't asked you about something, there's usually a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, if I'm looking at a case where, you know, an emergency department has missed a diagnosis, uh, so, and I've gone to, um, I've, I will have got, got uh, my opinion from my emergency department specialist who, who presumably has said that, you know, there, there was a negligent delay or ne- negligent, you know, failure to diagnose. I might then go to the specialist in that, that particular um, speciality and say, well, what difference has this made, you know, to this person's outcome? And they, go, uh, they will sometimes stray and say, oh, and comment on the the, um, the original assessment, but they don't want that. You know, that's that's not their area of expertise. That's in the emergency medicine purview of expertise. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask the questions in that way for a reason, even though it doesn't not always um, apparent um, why, but but there is a reason. Um, and you know, not commenting on things you haven't been asked about. Um, sometimes a, a gratuitous comment can make your opinion unusable, and the, the expert won't necessarily understand why. But um, gratuitous comments about the plaintiff or the defendant or the circumstances. Um, and yeah, for instance, um, uh, last year I had a plaintiff, and the defendant had um, referred them for. An independent assessment, as is their right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the rules say that if the plaintiff attends an appointment, then the defendant must serve the report that has resulted from that, that appointment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I was chasing and chasing this report. They wouldn't give it to me, wouldn't give it to me. And when I got it, I discovered why. Because this was purely supposed to be an assessment of, of the, 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 the plaintiff's um, condition and their capacities, etc. Yeah. The last line of the report said, you haven't asked me any questions about negligence, but there was clearly a negligent delay in this patient's treatment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm quite sure that the, um, the lawyers who briefed that expert were not very happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it gave me a good laugh, but I'm sure it didn't then. Um, but do you see what I mean? That, that, that makes, yeah, that, the defense didn't ask that expert about that issue. Yeah. And the crucialist comment has created a lot of problems for them. Um, yes. And and in a circumstance where you're not obliged to serve it, it, it and that may happen in, in various cases, that sort of gratuitous comment makes the opinion unusable, and it means that your clients basically wasted their money on the report because you have to get another one. Yeah. Um, taking too long, you know, is is obviously a big one, and as we mentioned, you know, these are all um, very busy people. You know, agreeing to do something and then and then pulling out um, is, is is a problem. Um, you know, sometimes we get a situation where you'll send off the, the brief and the person says, oh, yes, I'll do it. you wait a number of months, but they haven't actually really probably looked at, looked at it. And then I might say, oh, actually, I've got a conflict. And you've wasted oh, a number no. of months. Yeah, <laughs> you wasted a number of months whilst you, you could have spent that time, you know, getting another expert um, to, to comment on it. 
Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the last one is he's sort of trying to be the lawyer. Um, you know, I, I don't try to be the doctor. Um, I had a report a while ago that said, you know, the High Court says, you know, this about this particular bit of medical negligence. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want the medical experts sort of straying into that. You know, mm. I want their opinion. And then it's my job to fit that into, I guess, how, how the law applies in that particular instance. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, now that you've got the report, you've got everything that you need, how do you actually prepare everything to present in court? Well, well in advance, ideally. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I think we were assisted by, in Victoria, there's um, some fairly stringent case management in both the Supreme Court and the County Court which is where you know, the vast majority of, of med- medical negligence cases are, are heard. Yeah. Um, and so we have, you know, timetables that, you know, we ideally follow. Um, yeah. And, 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 of course... Um, I love you know, how you put ideally in front of that. <laughs> <laughs> we mostly do. We mostly do. But uh, I, I, I would have to confess on occasion that <laughs> it might, might have been a little bit late. Um, and so, but that, the timetables are very helpful in terms of obviously the interlocutory steps. And yeah, there's a very big focus on alternative dispute resolution now. And so, all cases have to go to mediation. And, and that's, yeah, that's a helpful process even if the case doesn't settle because you'll come out of it, you know, wiser about what the defendant says um, about your case and your client. Um, and, you know, and, and negotiations can be ongoing after, um, after mediation as well, of course. Um, so look, I am. I, um, I always try to get counsel involved early um, in cases that are litigated, and I think that's helpful for for a number of reasons. I like to use the same counsel um, from mm-hmm. from go to woe. Uh, I think it's good for the client because there's a consistency about um, the case for them. So if they had that, that barrister at mediation, it's much more settling for them to see that same person when they have have to turn up at court, you know, which yeah. is a very alien process for most people. Mm. Um, so I like to, you know, have have a consistency there, and I also find that from counsel's point of view, they're they're more invested in it in those sort of circumstances when they've had an ongoing relationship with the client as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, always um, preparation is the key. Um, and so always having uh, pre-trial conferences with experts and clients and just to give them um, a really clear expectation about what they can expect um, and so, you know, what, and also what the likely cross-examination they're going to, to face is um, so that people are coming into that, you know, well-prepared and, um, and understanding what's going to be asked of them. Yeah. Um, we, we really try to arrange, you know, expert witness evidence um, with minimal disruption, um, but it is, it is unpredictable. You know, it, it might be that, um, you know, the, a, a witness takes longer than we expected. Uh, might be that the judge has, you know, some other commitment that we couldn't have predicted. So we try and, and schedule as best we can and, and particularly with expert witnesses to um, you know, give them a range on a day, on a particular day, and really try and stick to that um, just to minimise, you know, how much um, their, their practice is disrupted. And we also try and use um, lay witnesses um, around doctors to try and to slot them in so that we can, we can give as, as accurate a time as we can um, yep. to, to those expert witnesses. Um, and so, but there is unfortunately always always some some level of, of unpredictability with, with respect to the timing of those things. Yeah, of course. So, is there anything that you can share in terms of lessons that you've learned in the many years that you've been in this industry? <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think um, 
Uh, ever using an, a treating practitioner as, as an expert, I think, um, is something I've certainly learned. You, you will occasionally, um, you know, get a client who insists that, you know, after this disaster, I went to you know, Dr. So-and-so who said, you know, X, Y, and Z. And, and I think that there are a number of problems with that. Sometimes, um, you know, doctors are prepared to say something to a patient that they're not prepared to actually swear up to in writing. Um, mm. And I don't think they ever bring a a truly um, independent lens to it. They're, they're affected by their relationship with the client and that might be positively or negatively. Um, and they will sometimes also just, you know, because they feel sorry for your client, try and give them, I guess, a bit of a leg up and try and, you know, say, well, yes, there is negligence. But, you know, they have to stand up to the same scrutiny as every every other um, uh, expert witness. And I think you're not doing them any favours either. You're not doing your client any favours and you're not doing them um, any um, any favours either. So I think that that's an important one and certainly something um, that I've learned over the years. Um, I, I think um, also you have to be brave enough to give people the bad news. Yeah. Um, which I would yeah, imagine me, me, would be tough. <laughs> yeah, look, it, it really can be. And and because, um, uh, you know, it, because there is such a very prescriptive um, way of proving a medical negligence claim. And so, for instance, you may have terrible negligence um, but no damage. And mm. it's very difficult for a client to take that in to say, but, you know, this was so bad. And we said, well, but, but you need to prove your damage as well. Mm. And, you know, or, and yes, you know, this this was negligent, but you can't prove that you have a significant injury under the wrongs act. So you're not entitled to make a claim, you know, an economic loss. Yeah. And those, those are, because it, medical negligence claims can fall at the negligence and they can fall at the causation and that it can fall at, at the level of injury. So there are, there are certainly a number of hurdles you have to get past, um, you know, for your client's um, claim to succeed. But, you know, what, I guess one thing I have learned is you really don't um, do your client any favours by continuing on with a case that's not going to succeed. Um, and you have to, I guess, you know, rely on your own judgment um, and, and be prepared to, to have the hard conversations. And, you know, in, in this area of law, you, you have quite a lot of them. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been very insightful, Paula. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I'm sure the listeners are going to get lots and lots out of your insights. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for joining me and have a lovely day. Thanks so much. I enjoyed the conversation too, Jess. Thanks, Paula. Bye-bye.